mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you got a security detail? Um, detail. I'd rather not talk about it, but I have a, no, a pair of huge cuboid men who follow me everywhere. Yeah. This is relevant because there's, there's a very important American person in the building this afternoon. Yeah, there is. I've just popped to the loo and they gave me the once over. I mean, not in the way that men normally do, <laughs> but just to make sure that I was, you know the right person in the right place wearing the right lanyard so um they well, you weren't you weren't allowed back into your own place of work because well, they they bolton it, security they was in the took building. an interest yeah this is because yes john bolton who was president trump's national security advisor but apparently he wasn't right wing enough for president trump so they fell out anyway he's a guest on john pinar's radio program here at times radio today We'll miss it, unfortunately, because we'll be travelling home. And then I suspect we might put the telly on. But, I mean, I shall mostly be listening to Radio 3. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> so we're going to get home in time for the game. And I think it's going to be leaden and wooden. And the score might not even be in England's favour. But you think oh, it's going no, to be I, a... I, I think it's going to be terribly turgid. But I think England will win probably 1 or 2-0. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Has anyone found something successful to rhyme with Qatar? You know, like know. like a kind of thriller in Manila, that type of um, sporting oh, rhyme. Um, it's the it's no, difficult, isn't it? Because everybody's mispronouncing it anyway. Our, our lovely colleague Emma has had to tell us about ten times how to pronounce Qatar. Oh yeah, but she changes her mind every time she tells us how to say it. So does she? I thought she'd be very consistent. <laughs> You're very mean. Not in my experience. I tell you what, you're absolutely on your own at the Christmas party. <laughs> Toxic me. guest. Suits me fine. <laughs> Sit there with the person I love the most, myself. Uh, now, there's um, there's some story in the Times today, actually. Um, <laughs> it's, you know how Tuesday, there's always stories from the Radio Times, because the Radio Times comes out on a Tuesday. I don't follow its path through the publishing Well, I either, do, but... because I'm its TV columnist. Much loved in that, well, OK, tolerated <sighs> in that role now for over a year. Um, but there's some stories in all the papers today about stuff that's in the Radio Times, including the battle, it's a battle, between posh Ed Sturton and not-so-posh 
Amal Rajan about how you should speak on the BBC. And it is, it's of interest to us because we're sort of, you know, former employees of the organisation. But also there is... there is the slightest bit interest. Oh, I'm fascinated. There is a long-running discussion in British public life about what the right accent is. And we've never really... That's never entirely been sorted, has it? I mean, I would say that everybody's everybody makes the point that all that really matters is that you are understood but some people's voices apparently are more acceptable than others okay so there are two things going on there aren't there so i mean i think the problem is that the received pronunciation uh, is challengeable by everybody who doesn't speak in the way that rp sounds yeah so that's the answer to what I thought your first question was. But when those surveys come out about what the most likeable voice is or the voice that you would most trust or you would want to tell you bad news or all those kind of things, mm. it's never RP. So that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's always true. a Newcastle accent from the, you know, anywhere on the northeast actually, not just Newcastle. Mm. Uh, You're widening it to Durham. Hartlepool. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going all the way Hull. to Anik. <laughs> <laughs> All the way up to okay. What about the east coast of Scotland? Do you not and like the, east, the people there? Oh my goodness, this is my family. Exactly. Yeah. But but isn't that funny that received pronunciation? It, it's not actually been validated by anybody ever asking anyone what they really wanted. Mm. Yeah, so no, that is there's something true. wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. The probably anyway. Did you have to change your accent when you went on air? If, I mean, if you'd been left to your own devices, if you'd just been completely utterly oh, feral I think I in. Feral. I think I do. I think I did um, laughingly uh, posh up a bit, or at least at, at least make myself not clearly anything. If you see what I mean, which is the kind of that's the sort of base point. That's the neutral modus operandi of most broadcasters, isn't it? And do you think it would have gone against you then? You wouldn't. You you were well, simply scared if, that you wouldn't have got jobs if you had allowed a little well, it, bit of it's, the. Well, it's it's worked against me because I did. I once. I, I am somebody who applied for a job at Radio Merseyside and did didn't get it because I didn't sound scarce enough, despite being absolutely the the fifth generation Liverpudlian wasn't good enough. Okay. Do you yeah. regret that? Not so much these days. No. <laughs> Fair enough. Although how they feel at Radio Merseyside is something we'll think they also feel profound relief. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh dear. Should we just right. have a very quick email from Alison then Go we'll on. head into our lovely guest who was lovely today, wasn't she? Uh, Alison says, hello you two. I cannot believe you weren't inundated with advice for your jacket potatoes. It's come to this, Alison. Microwave first, then blast for 10 minutes in a very hot oven, drizzle with olive oil and twist some salt on before putting it in the oven. Saves on energy costs, obviously. Uh, and Alison says, uh, getting used to your new location. We kind of are as well, actually, Alison, so it's lovely to know you're on board. Yeah. And Sue takes me to task for uh, complaining about having to do Christmas. <laughs> I'm really disappointed in you, Jane. Your lovely parents will have heard that. Sue, they won't have heard it. And secondly, I don't mean it in that way. But I do, I think it's something that um, a lot of middle-aged women, not just middle-aged women, feel about having having to do the work of Christmas. It can be a little bit taxing. And I think particularly for people, uh, this this year feels like a tough one, I suspect, for lots and lots of people who are trying to make sure 
that they please as many people as possible on a very tight budget. It's not it's not going to be much fun this Christmas for lots and lots of people. Mm. I'm not putting myself in that category. I'm just saying that um, I'm, <laughs> I'm already getting it with both barrels from every area of my own family. How fortunate I am, though, to have them, I should say. Yep. And I'm going abroad, so I don't have to hear. Yeah. You see, she, uh, Sue, she's just going abroad. So what do you think about her? <laughs> I'm angry and resentful, but I'm here. Yeah, that's very true. We know we are. We're going abroad for the first time ever in my kids' lives at Christmas. And it'll be the only abroad. time ever. Yeah, it? actually thinking about it, my bloody parents have been away for Christmas. Have they? Yes. <sighs> they went to see her. my mum's brother a couple of years ago, left me and my sister. We were all alone. We're only in our early 30s. But Anything that was, could have happened. But you enjoyed that Christmas, didn't you? Yes. You told me that in anecdotage. We, we, we actually had a really nice time with my memory, with my lovely Auntie Doris, who was my dad's mum's cousin just a lovely lady she was uncomplaining she enjoyed a drink and she loved her lunch once in the family now uh, <laughs> we had michelle gallant on the program today as our big guest and she is one of your favorite writers isn't she yes i just love the way she brings to life small irish communities with all the hubbub and the gossip and the tension and the judgment and also just gives us these fabulous central female characters. Her first novel, uh, Big Girl, Small Town, was about a young woman who worked in a chip shop called Magella, and her latest novel is called Factory Girls, and it's about three three young women on the cusp of leaving their hometown in Northern Ireland and moving on, but they spend the summer working in a shirt factory. I'm great, how are you? Really well, thank you. It's lovely to have you on. Can we start with the fact that you centre your novels in small towns where everybody seems to know everybody else and really knows their business. Um, is this based on your own experience of growing up? I guess, yeah, I can't really get away from that. That very much I did grow up in a small town where I knew exactly half the town because I grew up in the Catholic community, went to Catholic school, um, was part of the Catholic church. You know, the, the usual sort of thing at the time was your, your, your whole social network was very much your religion. So that did form me. And I think in many ways, actually, it was because I did have a brain injury in my 20s that I'd left my town when I was 18, but I landed right back in it in a very specific non-escape way when I was 23. So it's almost like... I was double dosed on it, you know. So the town you grew up in was was Castle Derg. Mm. And um, you are a Catholic from a Catholic family. Did that mean that you genuinely just didn't mingle with the Protestant community, that they were more or less entirely unknown to you? Um, we did have Protestant neighbours and I can remember when we were fundraising, we knocked on their doors and asked them for contributions for, you know, whatever we were, um, what, what we were fundraising for. But my family were Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic school, so all my friends were Catholic. Um, we did go on these cross-community peace trips where they would take some Protestants from the other school and the Protestants from our school, put them together and you had to do, you know, residential trips. But broadly speaking, yeah, I mean, I didn't have any Protestant school uh, Protestant friends at all until um, I went to Trinity College in Dublin. Um, yeah. And uh, the misconceptions that the communities have about each other, uh, for those of us who, who did, I mean, I, I should say I grew up in Liverpool, where you always knew who was a Catholic and, and who wasn't, quite honestly, um, usually judging by the surnames. But this is completely different in this part of Northern Ireland. Um, were the misconceptions about how the others lived and what they thought? 
It's quite interesting because my parents were teachers and they were teaching in Catholic schools. But my mum was born in England. My mum still holds a British passport, not an Irish one. Her her father was a British soldier who was captured in Dunkirk and, you know, spent five years in a prisoner of war camp in, in Poland. So I grew up with parents who gave me a bigger idea of of how the world worked and how things might not matter once you're outside the small town. But in my small town, we didn't have a big social network of Protestants. Um, we didn't, I didn't have Protestant friends. I didn't go to Protestant anywhere where I might meet them casually. Um, but I do remember my mum in particular talking about before the troubles when things weren't as segregated, how you know they would have formed alongside their Protestant um, neighbours, they would have socialised with them, they would have celebrated certain things. But this had all got to an exquisite point of segregation by the time I was 18, by the time I was leaving. And that's really what I wanted to explore in Factory Girls, this idea that, you know, you have a generation that did have a different experience, but somehow over the years, things just got more and more locked down to the point that ordinary people weren't meeting at all, despite living in a really small town. Uh, There's a lovely line in the book which sums up the whole caboodle, I think, Michelle, said by one of the main protagonists, Aoife, I suppose working in the factory has turned out to be a lot more interesting than we anticipated. Absolutely. (laughs) is an understatement. Uh, Could you have set your story anywhere in the workplace? Did it have to be a factory? Oh, I think, you see, I worked in a shirt factory myself one summer and it always frustrated me. I mean, I can remember the first time I tried to get a proper job and the guy who was interviewing me um, was embarrassed for me, scarlet for me, that, you know, I'd put down my factory job, my CV, and he told me to take it off. But I've always felt that that factory job was such a searing experience, such a brilliant and yet also difficult experience that I just thought, oh, I'm never going to write a a novel about the time I spent photocopying, you know, um, letters in a Dublin published office. That's never going to happen. But Working in a shirt factory was just really intense, really hard work. It shaped me physically that summer. It shaped me mentally for years. And I I just thought it was really fascinating. I love the fact that your central character in Factory Girls is Maeve. And uh, she makes the observation that men's clothing starts in size medium, but women's clothing starts in extra small. And basically, it's as though we just can't compute the idea that a man might be anything other than as big as medium and that an extra small man simply can't exist. That had never struck me before, but that's true, isn't it? It's so true. It's one of those things that you really do notice. Um, I I have an 11-year-old who's who's bigger than the size, you know, he's a a big 11-year-old. We can now find small menswear for him. Um, but even that is a strange thing that you've got an 11 year old boy and you can't actually shop in the kids section anymore. What are we doing with sizing and clothes? But yes, I've never met an extra small man in real life, apparently. <laughs> yeah, but they must exist. If you're one of them, let us know. Yeah. Um, you can text us 87222. Start your message with the word time. I tell you what, clothing and sizes is a whole special programme oh, about three and a half hours long, isn't yeah. it? Uh, have you in real life ever met an Andy Strawbridge, Michelle? And do you want to explain a little bit about uh, who your male lead character is? Um, I think Andy Strawbridge is a composite of many bosses. Um, I, I, I had several bosses in the factory and they were all Irish, you know, so but but there were certain kind of elements of 
<laughs> capitalism and toxic masculinity that very much played into how we worked in the factory, what the expectations were of what we would do, but also what we would put up with, what sort of behaviours that they would get away with. Um, I did work with an English boss who I think perhaps in my first week gave me the book How to Win Friends and Influence People for real. And he, he really did. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> I, was, I was given How to Win Friends and Influence People and told to go away and read it to help me you know, get on better with generally people, not specifically the English, but in general to get on better with people. Yes. Did you have a bit of an attitude, Michelle? Was that your problem? Well, I think I was just really naive. I mean, I can remember when I first moved to London, which was, let me think, 1998. And I used to say, I mean, I would go to the pub with all these lovely English people and ask questions like, so tell me, how do you feel now as an English national, now that you no longer rule a quarter of the world's surface? How does it feel to lose your empire in just one generation? I might say casually to somebody... Who would be like, what? <laughs> well, no, I mean, these are, many people would say these are questions well worth raising. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We are talking this afternoon to Michelle Gallen, the Irish novelist, and we got to the point in Michelle's life when she'd arrived in London and was tackling um, members of the British public about the empire and um, the disintegration of it. And did anyone ever give you a very good answer, Michelle? No, I, I honestly believe some people weren't even conscious that they had had that experience, that, you know, that that had actually happened. People were very conscious of having had a First World War and a Second World War, but not so conscious yeah. of having had an empire. And did it, I would imagine it would really needle somebody who'd grown up in Northern Ireland to arrive in London. And obviously London was bombed. There were terrorist incidents 
on the mainland uh, uh, in, in this part of, of um, Britain. But it wasn't something we live with day to day. And there was a huge level of ignorance about what was going on in Northern Ireland. Did that really get to you? Well, that was 1998, the summer of the Oma bomb. What, 28 people yeah. were killed that summer? And I'm from close to Oma. And when I went into the office the Monday after the Oma bomb, people were making jokes about it in mm. my office. Yeah. God. It was, it was, a, it was a, a very, I think, a very hard thing to be Irish or Northern Irish specifically in London at that point, you know, because it... It was perceived that the troubles were kind of over and, and that bomb indeed very much was the nail in the coffin, thankfully. But it was difficult to be to be seen as um, someone with perhaps, I don't know, the feelings and the kind of experiences. It, it was a very hard thing to, to come into an office and then to see how people saw you, that they actually thought making a joke about that sort of incident was acceptable. I think we've changed a lot since then, but that 98 was not easy. Mm. No, and uh, you then, of course, became unwell and you went back to the place, as you said at the start of our conversation, that you, you more or less thought you'd left behind. What was that like? So it is. it was a mixture of brilliant and also terrible um i mean obviously i didn't go back as myself as a 23 year old graduate with a photographic memory and lots of excitement i i was coming back in a wheelchair i was coming back completely reliant on my parents for care um and, and very luckily um our next door neighbor was a doctor who'd actually had encephalitis himself so I did receive a level of care I might not have received in, in London. I certainly wouldn't have received that level of care in London in the early days. But then when I started to get well, there wasn't really an infrastructure of, of care there. I mean, it was the aftermath of the OMA bomb. So you had a health service that was massively overwhelmed taking care of the people who'd survived, um, a mental health service that wasn't coping with the demands on it. And that then meant that I was perhaps in a place where I felt very trapped and I I had this, I had a big, big focus on getting out again and standing on my own two feet. But even that was quite difficult because what I've been told by the medical system is, was that brain damage is irreparable and I had to accept where I was and I wouldn't get better. And I do remember a medical professional telling me that I needed to take an aromatherapy course and find a husband and have babies because my ovaries were fine. Okay. Well, I mean, you can uh, you can do a lot with a votive candle, but possibly not everything. Uh, can you just explain a little bit, Michelle, about what happened uh, to your your memory and your capacity for words? I mean, it must have been terrifying for someone who knew that they wanted to be and, and were a writer to then have a brain injury that presumably uh, immediately rendered that really difficult actually was quite slow so it happened over a six-week period I started being really sick having terrible headaches really nauseous I couldn't eat um, but the, I really remember the time I realized something was wrong was when I opened a book beside my bed and I was halfway through the book and I literally couldn't remember anything so I'd gone from being able to memorize entire books and hold them in my head to opening a book and having no idea what had happened before and I can remember reading Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, which I'd read before, and it was really nonsensical to me. It didn't make sense. And then I can remember trying to write something in work um, just by hand, and I couldn't write the sentence I knew I needed to write. So then I tried to write my name, and I, I couldn't write my name. 
But at the time, I felt this great sort of sense of shame and fear and didn't actually reach out to other people to say this isn't something's not quite right until I was really sick. Um, and at that point, really, it was it was so obvious to everybody I wasn't well that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how long were you seriously ill for? Um, so I feel in my head. So what happened was I collapsed in work and I got taken to hospital in London and um, it took the doctors a while to kind of figure out what was going on. So there was, it, it took them a while to say, oh, we think this is meningitis. We think this is a brain tumor. And then eventually they said, we don't actually know what's wrong with you. We think you may have had encephalitis. And the doctor asked me to stand up to see if I could, st you know, if I could stand up again. So I, I stood up out of my hospital bed and he goes, he's, he goes, you're fine. You can go home. And I literally went home on the tube <laughs> and then had a massive relapse again. So encephalitis wasn't just like catastrophic. I had these moments of lucidity, these moments of being very capable. And then I would dive down again. Um, my brother helped me fly home and my dad picked me up in a wheelchair. And I think the next six months were very hard, but the first month was really like constant seizures, not being able to do anything for myself, really extreme moods. Um, my memory was absolutely in pieces. I mean, I, I just couldn't remember if he would even have my breakfast. I couldn't write. I couldn't. There were so many I couldn't, you know what yeah. I mean? And I can remember month after month learning things again, like learning how to make a cup of tea, you know, learning how to make some toast, learning how to, all, all the very basic things you can't imagine ever having to learn again. I don't want us to lose sight, Michelle, of the brilliance of your writing. And in particular, the fact that your female characters, uh, Magella in Big Girl, Small Town and Maeve in Factory Girls, are real and ripe and their language is outrageous. They're full, of, full of lustful thoughts. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's so life enhancing to read your stuff and to just be immersed in these worlds and I think is there going to be a TV version of Big Girl Small Town? So we're working on adapting the book right now with Lookout Point Productions and I'm even writing the scripts which is so super exciting because um, I don't have TV experience you know they've, they've just ha like taken a big punt I guess or they have trust in it so I'm really excited about that because Magella is just one of my favorite people she's as real to me as any of my brothers or sisters or my family you know yeah just just set her up you know in the couple of minutes we've got left she works in a chip shop doesn't she Michelle is an undiagnosed, overweight, autistic woman who lives with her alcoholic and opioid-addicted uh, mother, and she works in a chip shop. And what she loves about—I mean, what she loves more than anything—is fish and chips. But she works in the fish shop with um, her colleague Marty, and she just wants this really ordinary life where she's serving up people their sausage suppers or their fish suppers and getting cans of coke out of the fridge. But her her grandmother has been murdered, the, you know, the week before, and everybody in the town now wants to know who murdered her grandmother, and has kind of reactivated the gossip around her missing father who disappeared in the troubles yeah okay well if that hasn't excited enough people to read it i don't know what will because i just couldn't get magella out of my head when i read that book and um i just think it's absolutely great and are you working on a memoir as well michelle so I am working on a memoir, but I, I kind of find it really hard and mostly because it's zero crack, right? <laughs> I, I love <laughs> so true though. I love Do you know what that's a great really... title for it, Michelle? Yeah, you've got it, you've got the title. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's just I love writing these feisty, amazing women who do really cool things. And to be honest, writing about, hey, I was 23 and everything looked great and then it wasn't is just so, oh. So, 
Yeah, I am working on it. Well, it is that, Michelle, but we've been captivated by listening to you this afternoon. So please, at some stage, do zero crack. Yeah, yeah. Zero crack. (laughs) That was the author, Michelle Gallen, um, who joined us this afternoon to talk about her latest novel, Factory Girls. And we really do hope she does finish her memoir because that is just an epic title and she must, must use it. But I know what she means. Her books are incredibly, uh, they make serious points, but they are full of life and they're very funny. And I suppose she was making the point that actually there have been parts of her life, her real life, that have been quite challenging. But nevertheless, write the book, Michelle, because you're really, really good. Mm. Uh, This is a lovely email from Christopher. If you'd like to email us on the podcast or it goes to the same inbox uh, for the live show, it's Jane and Fee at times.radio. We'll take any old topic, won't we, Jane? And we do like to, we like something that takes our minds in a slightly different direction and and criticizes as well. I no, don't, we I don't like that. Well, no, I don't mind it. No, I, you I, say that, but you do. Yeah, I don't, and don't, you don't. actually know you really like it if it's critical of me. <laughs> that's that's true. Yes. <laughs> Oh, so here comes Christopher. Hi, Jane and Fee. I thought I would ask you to sort out my dilemma. Having retired, I took over the running of our sea rowing group with the plan of rowing with a group of oldies before heading to the local hostelry. It's me, one other bloke and a large group of women. My question is, how should one address a group of women? And Christopher, I'm just going to run this past uh, Lady Garvey here. Yeah. Girls. No. Ladies. No. Lasses. No, I think I think this is a really good question. I'm glad Christopher has asked it. I would just say everyone. Hi, everyone. How is everyone? Because that's in no way... I have a real problem, as you know, with guys. I can't stand large groups of people being referred to as guys. Oh, I thought you meant you had a problem with blokes. Well, both are true, but let, we're focusing for the moment on, on the terminology. On the terminology, guys. I cannot stand it. I don't know why we've allowed it to become some kind of catch-all term for everyone when it isn't. It's for, I would say, youngish men are guys and the rest of us are women, girls, or just people. If I were you, Christopher, I'd just say everyone, though. I'd just say, hello, everyone. Right, everyone. What's wrong with that? Why Why do we need anything... We need to be friendly. Well, I love the fact that Christopher has given it a lot of thought. His fourth suggestion is, or indeed, just women. And never, ever refer to a group of women as just women, because that won't help you rowing at all, Christopher. Uh, going back all the way to stopcocks, he goes on to say, Fee, you said your stopcock was under the path as well as that one. You should have another one likely under your sink inside the house, yours in anticipation. Well, do you know what? If I've got time before the match starts tonight, I'm going to go and hunt for that because <laughs> because because you don't want to leave that kind of thing to an emergency. And I don't like it. You know, when a plumber comes around and says, where's your stopcock? And mm. you have to do that kind of bemused look that girls, ladies, lasses or just women yeah. can sometimes affect. I don't like to have that look on my face ever anymore. So you hunting for your stopcock, that's a, that's a Channel 5 documentary at 8 o'clock, that is. <laughs> or possibly in the slightly steamier 9 o'clock slot. <laughs> Uh, where they currently put a lot of documentaries about large shops preparing for Christmas. God, they do, don't they? There's, there's the middle aisle one is fascinating. Isn't wasn't it? our conversation interesting today about periods and whether or not women needed to have them? This wasn't interesting in the sense that you and I were interesting talking about it, but we had a great guest on called Julia Bailey, who I thought was, she was a reproductive um, specialist, a reproductive health specialist at UCL in London. And she, it's her very firm belief 
that you can just be on the pill for as long as you want and you do not need to have periods. And I do find that, I know not everybody agrees, by the way, there's all sorts of stuff in the ether that says, oh, no, can't be so. But I do I find the generational shift in in views on all this absolutely fascinating. If you'd had that knowledge available to you at, let's say, 18, would you have chosen to not have periods by I taking think, a pill? Well, I think probably if I'd been... If the knowledge had been available and I was still growing up in the 1980s, I think I would have been really tempted to be on the pill the whole time. But now there does seem to be this anti-contraceptive pill movement amongst some young women, this fervent desire to to reject it, actually, and to question everything about it. Um, and I think it's partly because it just seems to a lot of young women that they're having to do everything and that young men get away with not having loads of invasive chemicals put into their system yeah now i mean there are all sorts of good reasons why frankly well because because it's women who get pregnant you must be the ones who make sure that you don't get pregnant unless you really want to be because that is a whole other set of problems yeah so i can completely understand that argument i think it is really interesting that now there is a choice about periods it's not a choice about contraception i mm. only ever entertained uh, the pill or other forms of contraception to do with having babies and fertility. You know, it really wasn't, I'm not sure that I even really thought very much about STIs, which I think no, the I younger don't. generation have to think about a lot more now. Yeah. But it was never about periods. I just read the leaflet that told me what to take and when to take it, and I didn't question it at all. I Jane. didn't question it either. No. I thought, and I, I didn't really know that that bleed I had was not a period. No, I don't think I did until no. I stopped taking it. So what an interesting leap has been made yeah. in knowledge. I thought she was fascinating as well. Yeah. If you want to go back and have a listen to that, if, if this has pricked up your ears, it was about, what was it, half past it's four? About half past, about 25 to five this evening on the okay. live And you can show. do that on catch-up, can't you? Can you do that on catch-up? Yes, you can do that you on catch-up. Catch wow. Yeah. Wow, technology, James, I'm, amazing. I'm going to go home and catch up on all our shows. Well, let's go home and watch the football first, shall we? Not not that we're watching it together, but, you know, you you can send me a little text if you want to. You never do. Uh, but obviously, good luck, both teams. <laughs> <laughs> Did I manage to pull that off? <laughs> Your Welsh side came out, I thought, there. Wonderful. <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you like what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 